All right. Good morning, Orangewood. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Uh, it's exciting to see so many of you here, so many kids. This is awesome. And uh, like Joe said, we're off and running, aren't we? There it is. No going back. Uh, we've been given the gift of a new year, and uh, it is so good, again, to see Emily here with us today. What a gift that is to see God's power and at work in uh, our, our, our body here at Orangewood. What a great opportunity to look ahead. I'm so excited about the series that we're beginning, Break Out. And let me talk to you a little bit about that, just give you the, the sense of what that is, because at Christmas time, we talked about the great break in. Wasn't that what Christmas was all about? The great break in as the eternal son of God came in fulfillment of promise. Christmas is, I love Christmas. It's a wonderful time because, well, there's all kinds of great things. Family, my family is gone and that's wonderful too. They've gone back home and some of your family is gone. You're glad about that too. Uh, but, but the reality is Christmas is a wonderful time, but it, it really is that central point of human history, isn't it? Where, where we see the flow, the story of the Bible line coming to fruition in a powerful, powerful way, creation, fall, or the great rebellion. But then the promise that a Messiah would come, and the Messiah has come. The great break-in has taken place, fulfillment of all human history. Jesus is the very center of human history. The great break-in has happened. That's changed everything. He inaugurated a, a completely different day. And we are living in that time, but it's not done because there's going to be a great consummation one day. It's not going to be just a restoration of the way it was in Genesis. No, it's going to be way better than that. It's going to be the consummation. Genesis, Genesis was good, wasn't it? Everybody say, yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was good. But was the Garden of Eden all there was? No, it was only in prototype of what would come because the glory of God had not yet been spread over the entire planet. It was in Eden. It was wonderful. But the whole universe hadn't been transformed when Jesus comes back again. It's not going to be just a restoration. It's going to be the consummation, the beginning of all things. We've got a world that has to be transformed. We've got a universe. There's all kinds of planets out there. I don't know if there are aliens out there. But I know this. There's a whole universe that still has to be transformed. And when Jesus comes back, it will be done. And so the thinking of this new series, of course, is the reality that, that Jesus has come and he's broken in and it's changed everything. It's, it's cha it, it, it caused the, the first century Christians to break out of their bondage to sin and death and hell, that cycle. Sin, death, hell, fear, all of that. They've been set free from that, but even more. To break into the world, break out into the world. Most of those Jews in the first century who became Christians had never traveled more than 90 miles from their home. Maybe, maybe if you lived in northern Galilee, you went, you went 90 miles down to Jerusalem, but probably hadn't traveled more than that. There was a breakout beyond all comprehension when the church of Jesus Christ spread out. And uh, it's still going on today in our day and age. And we have a wonderful opportunity to talk about that. So what it's going to do is it's going to, as we look in this study uh, of Ephesians, it's going to it's going to put us back into a perspective as we look at, 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 at the gospel and our salvation from God's perspective. In Ephesians, we're going to see theology. We're going to see truth. We're going to see the work of Christ, the gospel, from God's perspective. And you're going to hear words that you've heard before, but maybe wonder, how does that pertain to my salvation? We're going to talk about it. 
And, 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 and so we're going to see salvation from God's perspective and how that sets us free to cause us to break out. That's going to be a great time. And by the way, the Lennox family is going to break out of here. You guys are headed back up north Tuesday, right? Go back up where it's nice and cold. Good. We're we'll praying for you. God bless you. We're glad you're there. I'm watching a series with my wife on the frontiersmen and how they confronted people right up where you live. As, as, the, as the westward movement took place and what it did to, the, to, to Native Americans, how hard it was. Your ministry is so important and we're thankful for you. So you go, you go and don't bring the cold back here, but uh, we'll be praying for you. All right, listen, before we look into this, let's bow our heads and hearts quickly in prayer one more time. Our great God, it's, it's such a privilege to come into your presence today to worship to be a family that has been called and set apart by your, your glorious grace. And as we start a new year, uh, at, at the get-go, we commit it to you. For you are our hero, Lord Jesus, our great God. We worship you. We bow before you. We, in, in no way do we want to steal your glory and honor, but we want to be lifted up to have a bigger vision of who you are. And so we pray that you would open our eyes as we look into your word, as we prepare for a new year. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show up in a powerful way. Forgive us our sins. Cause us to lean completely on Jesus for everything. May our hearts be cleansed as we look into a new year. May you take our burdens, our fears, wash them away, and cause us to have the great hope and confidence in you. Cause us to break out by your grace as we look into your word, as we start a new year. And so right now, as we've confessed our sins, as we think about who you are, we pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite life-transforming truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, December 31st is, uh, for the last 39 years, been a big, uh, a big day in the life of our family because my wife was born on December 31st. And so uh, we always celebrate Karen's birthday uh, then. And uh, she got a really wonderful tender card from her, her younger brother, tender card. I loved it. And it, it, I want to share that with you today. So it starts out saying, once upon a time, a very special person was born who was destined to change the world. He's a tender guy. Open it up. Calm down. It's not you. It's Jesus. <laughs> Parentheses. I think he'd want you to have a happy birthday, though. <laughs> you know, I love that. I love that because the person that is to change the world is Jesus. He's the hero of what we do. He's the hero of everything that we're about as Christians, it truly is about him. Somebody says, it's all about, it's not about me. You've heard that before. I think that's how Rick Warren's book starts out. It's not about us. And that's true and it's not true. It is not about us in the sense that what, what all of creation is, is moving toward is the consummation of all things in Christ. And we're going to see that as we study Ephesians. However, it is about us because if, it, if we weren't here, if we weren't fallen creatures, he wouldn't have come. It is about you. You're deeply loved. And those are some of the mysteries of the gospel that we're going to look at together. And what I want to do this morning is I, I have a point before I read the text, and that's meeting the Ephesians. And then I'll read the text, 
And then I want us to look at the gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then we'll uh, have some time of communion together and get you out of here on time. Some of you are saying that's a lot to cover. I know. So let's get going. Let's get going. I want you to meet, first of all, the Ephesians, because you need to understand as Paul starts this letter, he says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God to the church, to the church in Ephesus. And uh, as we look at this series, we're going to see how the, the church really in Ephesus is a key city, but you need to know about it because it's, it's so important. Um, Ephesus was a major political center. It was a, 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 a center of education and learning. It was a business center. And it was, it was as well a, a huge religious center. And that's so important to keep in mind. It was an international center. Uh, the people in Ephesus, Asia Minor, for you history and geography buffs, it's an Asia Minor, what we would call today Turkey. And as I talk to you about Ephesus, I'm reminded that I've never been there. Joe Creech has. He knows far more about Ephesus than I ever will. But what I do know is that it's an Asia Minor. It was an ancient seaport, so incredibly important. Today, Ephesus is not as important as it was back then. It's a minor city. It says the silting has taken place, and that port is filled up. But it was a huge international center there. 550 years before Jesus was born... Uh, a temple was built. A meteorite had fallen right in that area, and the people saw it as a sign of God or the gods, and that meteorite was seen as sacred, a message from God, and later a temple was built to the goddess Diana or the goddess Artemis. Uh, Artemis is the, uh, the Greek name and Diana, the Roman name. And, and, and this temple was an incredible temple. I think we have a, a picture of it. Let's see if, uh, if we could take a look at it. There it is. We have this idea that most of the temples of the ancient world were all bleached white. And this is a picture of a bleached white temple. However, most of them were not bleached white. They were, they were colored. They were painted. They were beautiful. This was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Of all of the ancient temples, uh, uh, the temple in Ephesus, the temple to Diana, was, was, well, let me give you some stats. It was 66 yards by 133 yards, 106 columns, about 66 feet high. Look at that thing. Kind of picture that. It was built in this earthquake-prone area on charcoal, timbers, animal skins to provide a cushion, sort of a ancient Southern California. You know, it was an earthquake area. And so they tried to, to build it so an earthquake wouldn't destroy it. Eventually, earthquakes destroyed it. It was rebuilt several times. And then eventually, it was gone forever. But it was a, a magnificent temple. Antiper, uh, Antipater of Sidon once said this. He was an ancient poem, poet. And he said, I've seen the walls and hang, hanging gardens of ancient Babylon the statue of Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids and the tomb of Mausoleus. But when I saw the temple of Ephesus rising to the, the clouds and all these other wonders were put in the shade, this was a magnificent temple built on a hill in Ephesus so that wherever the Ephesians went, they could see this temple. It affected every day of their life. 
And the average Ephesian, the average pagan, thought in terms of the fact that they were there to be nurturers of the goddess. Let me say that again. I kind of mumbled that. They were nurturers of the goddess. That's how they defined their life. They were there to take care of the goddess Diana, the goddess Artemis. And that's an important fact to keep in mind because as we think about Paul writing to the Ephesians, he's going to be talking about something as we talk about the gospel and look at the gospel that is 100% absolutely diametrically opposed to what pagan religion was all about. What you said, what do you mean? Well, pagan religion was all about taking care of the god or the goddess, bringing the gifts to the goddess, trying to do for the god or the goddess what you could do for them so that you could gain favor for them. And Christianity is completely opposite, isn't it? Because Christianity is not about what we do for God, but it's what God has done for us. And so at every step of the way, Paul and the Christians in Ephesus are confronting a culture that is diametrically opposed to Christianity. Uh, and, and that's the reality. Much, By the way, much religion today, man-made religion today is the same way, isn't it? It's people coming and saying, what can I do for God so that God would give me merit, so that God would take care of me, that God would forgive me, that God would give me eternal life. So many, uh, that's humanistic religion at its best. It's always been that way. Polytheism or humanistic man-made religion, Christianity is completely different. It's not what we do for God, it's what God has done for us. By the way, there was another God bigger than the goddess Diana in Ephesus. Do you know who it was? Can you guess? Hmm. It wasn't Diana and it wasn't Zeus. It was, you ready for this? Rome. It was Rome. It was the emperor. Because you see, in this political, religious center, you could worship whatever you wanted and, and whoever you wanted as long as you worship the emperor of Rome too. As long as you threw a pinch of incense to the emperor of Rome, you, it was, you were cool. Christians were called atheists. You know why? Because they didn't worship the emperor of Rome or the other gods. Imagine that. You just, if somebody asks you, what do you do? You say, I'm an atheist. I follow Jesus. And they'll go, huh? That will open a door for them to be more confused. And if you can explain it, that'd be a good thing. But the reality is, is Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they believed in Jesus and they did not believe in the other gods, nor did they believe in the emperor God. And so down through human history, there have been two major gods that Christians have always had to confront the God of false, the gods of false religion and the God of big government. Always. When you get to the book of Revelation, you say, I don't understand Revelation. Who are the two big uh, uh, negative people in the book of Revelation? The beast, the false prophet, and the Antichrist, right? False religion, big government that takes the place of everything. I think we are facing some of that today in, in America. All right, so let me give you some uh, thoughts about, uh, see, it's important to understand this as you think about the church breaking out, because they were breaking out in Ephesus in a very hostile area. Paul was there for three years, the longest he ever spent anywhere uh, in a church, started at about 53, 55 AD, 
And as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, it's eight or nine years later, 62 to 64 AD, chained to a Roman soldier in Rome in, in what is called one of the first of the uh, prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And, and, and he writes to them from a Roman prison. Now, let me tell you one other thing that Orangewood has in common with Ephesus. Uh, and maybe you haven't thought about this before. It just occurred to me as we were thinking, of, thinking about this series is that Ephesus was one of the top five cities in the Roman Empire in the first century. It was, it was a key city. Orangewood has what has in common with that, that we're one of, in one of the top five cities of Florida. Ephesus was strategically located. Orangewood is strategically located. I'll never forget, 30 years ago, we came here to plant a church. Uh, Chuck Green and I drove around. He said, it's either Lake Mary or Winter Springs. Let's go driving. We went driving out there. And I said, you know, you got, where are you going to be? And we were at Trinity Woods. That's where I was in a trailer with Joe Creech, right? Uh, trailer. Thanks, Chuck. It was great. It was a great place to launch, you know? And, and, but, but now, but you guys were about ready to build here and you started coming over here and, and we're building as we were starting the church out in Winter Springs. But I always had this sense of how strategic this was. Look, right off of I-4. And when all this, when all that interchange stuff gets done in about 25 years, it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> You're strategic. Look, you are so strategically located. I never thought that out in Winter Springs, we were strategically located. We were for that part of the world, but look at Orangewood. Here you are. And it's important for us as we begin a new year to kind of get that picture again of how strategically located we are as a church. You are as a church. It's important to understand that just as Ephesus was strategically located as a church, they were at a crossroads and Paul's ministry model was go to the city, go to the big city, win the city, and then radiate out from there. That's historically what Orangewood's done here in Orlando. It came to a very strategic... I know, he started at the bowling alley downtown. I heard all those things. It wasn't a bowling alley, but it felt like that. Some of you were there. Um, but the reality is, look, look where you are and understand that by 400 years, Ephesus, almost the whole city, had been converted in the first 400 years, and they were reaching out further and further and further into the pagan areas. By the way, the word pagan really comes from the idea of rural or countryside. So if you're from the rural areas, you're a pagan, <laughs> historically speaking. Win the city, then go out. Well, it's important for us to understand the connections that we have. Albert Camus, the existentialist thinker, once said, I'm searching for something I do not have, something I'm not sure I can define. I'm searching for something I do not have, something I'm not sure I can define. There are hundreds of people like that all around us every day in this city. Hundreds, thousands. And the New Year's gotten started. They had an ad on, on, on the news in New York City. Uh, the lines are huge right now for salad bar restaurants in New York City because everybody's trying to eat healthier. And everybody's ticked off yelling at each other because there's so many people. And gyms, gyms, workout places have long lines. Just wait a month. It'll all die down. 
Um, but everybody's coiled up for success to find how they can meet the biggest, deepest needs of their heart. We have the answers for them. Jesus is the answer. We have the answer. We are strategically located to give that to them. And if you're here for the first time at Orangewood, this is a perfect time to join us. And if you uh, are here, happen to duck your head in as a, not a Christian yet, trying to see why we do what we do and the way we do it, we're glad you're here. If you have questions, just ask us. There's a method to our madness. And it all boils down to Jesus. All right, let's look, let's look at the text. I'll read it, and then I'll unpack it, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and some of you are looking at your watches. I know, I'm very aware of my watch here. I want you to know. If I go over, it's intentional, and the Holy Spirit has said it's okay. <laughs> here it is. Here it is. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption uh, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. This is one of my favorite verses. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory of God. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. The gifts of the Father. Let's first talk about that because we see that in these first few verses here. Let me unpack that real quickly. But some of you are saying, how can you unpack all of this? I can't. This is absolutely amazing text of Scripture. Uh, there is so much condensed. In, I, I almost brought my systematic theology, just one of them, or I should have brought them all, you know? Because what this is, is this is a compact systematic theology of, of the work of Christ from the inside out, from God's perspective. And we talk, it's a blessing along the lines of, of, of ancient Jewish prayers. It's a blessing. It's a Trinitarian blessing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we see that the Father gives us incredible gifts. First of all, he's blessed us with every gift in Christ Jesus, every gift. I love that because some of us sometimes think, God, you're holding out on me. But the text of Scripture says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, 
If you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have all the blessings now. They're yours. They're your possession. Now, we don't always use all those gifts. We don't always understand all those gifts, but they're ours now. The Father is not holding out on us. The second gift is that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us. You know what the word choose means here? It means choose. And I go right back, when I think of this word choose, I don't know what they do today, but I go back to fourth grade after school or before school kickball, an epic game. We would gather before school, after school, we'd play kickball and we would choose up teams. And I always hoped that it was one of my buddies uh, who, who was, was going to be the captain of a team because I hoped that he would choose me, you know, kickball, oh, uh, a dodgeball. We played bombardier. See, modern day... Dodgeball is so, t- we play bombardier. The word says it all. We were warriors back then. And, but I, but I, choosing teams, it was like you're standing there and, you, and the, guy, the guy is looking around at the group of boys standing there and you're going, choose me, choose me, choose me, choose me, choose me. And then, and, and they chose you. You didn't like it if they chose you fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth. You wanted to be at least one or two right? Because then when they chose you, one or two, you'd go, yes, yes. He thinks I can contribute to this team. Yeah, I'm fourth grade. I'm not thinking it consciously like that, but I'm thinking, he wants me. He thinks I'm going to help him. I feel good about myself. I was completely validated. I'd love that guy right then and there because he chose me. And when, when we think of this word, the idea of being chosen, it carries similar connotations. I hope the guy who chose me, knew me. Does the Father know you? He knows you by name. He knows you by face. And some of you think, he doesn't even know me. Of course he does. He's known you before the foundation of the world. Is that long enough? He knows you. He chose you. Now, the idea of difference, uh, of choosing is a little bit different. In fact, it's hugely different because the guy chose me thinking I might contribute to his team, his win. God never chose us thinking that we'd contribute to his team. I mean, he's going to make us contributors, but he didn't think, boy, I sure can't wait till I get Pete on the team. Some of us came to faith in Christ thinking, you know, I'm going to become a Christian. God can use me. God's, and some of, some of us even not thought that when we first came to Christ. God, you're getting somebody here. I can help you. And he just smiled. Because the idea of choosing is completely different. God doesn't choose the qualified, qualifies the chosen. In Christ, through his work, it's a gift of the Father. It's the work of the Son. And so we're chosen, we're wanted, knowing that we're completely unqualified. Don't you love that? As we prepare to communion, take communion, think about that. As you take the bread and the cup, that it's Jesus that qualified you and me. And this choosing was done before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. That's why he calls them saints, by the way. A saint is not somebody who achieves sanctification or holiness. A saint is someone who is given holiness or righteousness. Um, you probably heard the story of the two older ladies who were talking. And one lady, they were talking about their husbands. One lady said, my husband is a saint. And the other one said, ooh, mine's still alive. <laughs> um, 
And there's this idea that a saint is somebody who has lived long enough following Jesus, done enough good, the idea is out there. But that's not what a saint is in the biblical sense. A saint is one who is, I mean, the, the Ephesians had only been Christians maybe 10 years. None of them had followed Jesus as long as Mother Teresa. They were given righteousness through faith in Christ's work because well, these, this is the, the gospel. This is the gospel from God's perspective, from the inside out. Uh, and so uh, how powerful uh, it is for us to understand all this, that we would be holy and blameless, that we would be considered saints. In love, it says in verse five, the father predestined us to adoption of sons. There's another word. Do you know what the word predestined means? It means predetermined. I know, some of you don't like that. It has all kinds of theological, humanistic connotations. You say, that can't be. It is. Words mean things. The Bible's very clear. He chose you. He predestined you. He predetermined it. Are you wanted? Yes. You are a gift to God. He gave the gift of his son that we, he could present us to himself because of Jesus. This is, a, this is all very compelling. And if you and I will allow this to sink in, some of you say, oh, that's heavy theology. That's clear biblical teaching it's right there. I didn't write it. But if you will allow this to sink in, you will say, that's a compelling gift that I'm chosen, I'm predestined, I don't fully understand it, but I accept it, I'm wanted, I'm known, there it is. Uh, and, and that's why Jesus came, because he came for me. He's a good Good father. I get tears when I sing that song. Thankfully, the lights are down. I go to the bank on that. The gift of the father, the gift of the son. Real quick, the gift of the son are powerful. Verses 7 through 12. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So redemption is being bought back, right? You once belonged to somebody else. What happened is that our sin is that our sin caused us to die. Paul would, he's going to say in Ephesians 2, it's coming up a couple of weeks. In Ephesians 2, he'll say, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were cut off. You were born cut off. I was born cut off. I was born dead in my trespasses and sin. And I had to be bought back from that deadness, from that separation from that absolute loss, and we had to be redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's why we can never take blood out of Christianity. You take blood out of Christianity, you, 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 you denude the message of Christianity. And the problem is, is that we don't understand this because uh, the cost for our redemption was so high because our crimes were so great, but we just don't understand that because we're raised in a humanistic culture that says, you're good. You're good. You're good. But when no one's looking, I know I'm not. I, I know I need a savior. I, I, I am really taken with this reality that I need. You say you've been following Jesus for a long time. You're about almost as old as Mother Teresa was when she died. Thanks. I follow Jesus a long time, and the closer I am to the light, the more I see the dirt. I need forgiveness of sins. 
so do you. And in Jesus, we have them. Grace, the mystery of his will. We read about, we sang a little bit about the mystery of God's will. The word is mysterion, and it's a word in the Greek that doesn't mean difficult to understand. It just simply means something that was hidden before and now is revealed. The, one of the gifts of, of Jesus to us, forgiveness of sins and redemption, being bought back from death, uh, but also being led into the plan of God. The mystery of God was hidden, is hidden to a lot of people, but it's very clear right now. In Christ, we've been forgiven. And uh, uh, we have an inheritance. Those are compelling gifts that make compelling people. That's why we sang the song, Tis So Sweet, to trust in Jesus. I'm from Southern California. In California, when I got to Birmingham, Alabama to do my internship, sometimes I'd be sitting around with a bunch of guys and they'd say, they'd be talking about a different guys and they'd say, Hey, uh, he, this guy is a great guy. You'll like him. He's a sweet guy. And I'm from California. I'm thinking, we don't call guys sweet guys unless, well, there's something there. But what we did do is when something was really great, we would say, that's, that's sweet. That's sweet. When I sing that song, because sweet is kind of not a guy word, can we talk? Unless you're thinking about sugar, something really good. That's sweet. It is sweet to trust in Jesus because I can't trust myself. All right. I, lastly, the gifts of the Spirit. This is powerful. We are, verses 13 and 14, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Have you notice how quickly Paul goes from the Father to the Son to the Spirit? This is why we're Trinitarian. It's, it's not that we made it up. It's that the Bible teaches it. One God and three persons and this Holy Spirit's particular role in the council of, uh, of eternity is, is that the Holy Spirit was to come alongside, to bring us, to apply to our hearts when we were lost, to apply to our hearts the work of Christ, to take it from out there and put it in here and to seal us, to hold us in Christ. And I am so aware of that uh, in my own life, uh, that the sealing, of the Holy. The only reason I'm faithful to Jesus Christ is because his spirit holds me. I'd love to take credit, but I can't. And so in this Trinitarian blessing, we see that the Ephesians are getting confronted with something that is completely opposite of, of what's going on. Pagan religion, humanistic religion, and the, and the trust in huge government. Now it's all focused back to trusting Jesus. And as we come into a new year and as we celebrate communion in just a minute, the elders will come forward in just a minute. I want you to understand if some of you thought I've gone really fast through that, I have. But what we're going to partake of in communion is the visible drama of the work of Christ. Of the work of Christ from the from the inside out, as we look at the reality that the bread speaks of his body given for us, the sacrifice, him coming and taking our flesh, but not, our sin, uh, but not human sin nature inherited. He was born of a virgin. And, and, and then his perfect life and, and, his, and then taking our curse on the cross. And then on top of that, his ascension to heaven. It is finished. It's done. He, he goes home and sits at the right hand of the throne of God in power as we look ahead to the new year. Where is Jesus? 
He's there. He's here. He's in power. And as we take a, a, a thought of what happened in Acts chapter 1 and 2, is the, it's a pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that as he broke in, he broke in that we could be set free and then that we as a church could break out, could move out. Think about what Orangewood has done and is doing. Think about the school, the ministry to Christians that you guys have had so long. A ministry of bringing justice, economic justice, and, and ministry to those who, who don't know anything about Jesus. Think about what's gone on here, what's going to go on here. The breaking in, for the breaking out. We're going to move into a whole new edition of that in 2019. As we stand in faith and trust. But it's got to be here in our hearts and not just in our heads. And so I invite you as we take of communion to, and as we finish the sermon, to take these texts home and to mull over and to let them go deep into your heart. I encourage you to memorize them. These are eminently memorizable verses. And let these words just seep into your soul. Go, how do you memorize? Over and over and over, and it will set you free. As our elders come forward now, I want to invite you to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And how important it is to remember that this is a sacrament. It is, it is a means of grace. It is, a, it is a way that God uses to use sensible signs and symbols to stimulate our faith. But we take these elements, there is not power in the elements of themselves, nor anything that I would say up here. The power is through faith as we apply the working of Christ for us by the Spirit. As you take communion, as you prepare your hearts to come forward, pray something similar to this. Lord, just enable me to see in this the gospel. I am so thankful, Jesus, for what you have done for me. Break into my heart now. Make it real to me. The gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, the gifts of the Spirit. Set me free. May I relax that I may be sent out. The Apostle Paul said, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he took the bread he said, as he explained it in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, Jesus took the bread with the disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the cup, he took it and passed it. And he said to them that as you take this cup, as you take this sacrament and couple it with faith, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm going to pray. And then when you're ready, you come forward to one of our sites. One of them is gluten-free. Which one is that? Right over here. Right over there. If you want the gluten-free, you can go there.
prepare your hearts, and then come forward. Let's pray. Our Father, what a joy it is to be able to say you are a good, good Father. To be able to say it is sweet to trust in Jesus. To be able as men and women to be able to say our hope is in you, Holy Spirit. We trust you. We trust the work of the triune God on our behalf. And we pray that you would take the work of Christ and that you would send it deep into our hearts and minds that we would be set free. Free from our past and free for the future. As we now worship you, meet us, we pray, in your strong and holy name. Amen.